Well, tonight you're going to need a Bible. Keep it handy. Uh, There are a couple of scriptures I'm going to put on the screen. Most of the scriptures I'm going to ask you to look up in your copy of God's Word tonight. So we're going to do a little bit of Bible drill, a little bit of flipping around. Most Wednesday nights when we've talked about David, we've tried to plant or root in one specific text. We're going to do a lot of jumping around tonight. We're talking about David and his legacy. We've started with uh, David growing up in Jesse's house, taking care of the sheep. We've come all the way through David's life. Uh, Last week we talked about his death, and tonight we take a retrospective look back and we talk about the legacy that David left behind. I thought it might be helpful to begin with a definition. What is legacy? This is a definition from Merriam-Webster. Legacy is something transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor or from the past. And typically when we talk about legacy, we're thinking about money that is passed down, property of some kind that is passed down, or reputation of some kind that is passed down. And when we talk about David and his legacy, there was money and property that was passed down, but we're really talking about the question of reputation. When we look back on David's life, How is he remembered? And as we look back on David's life and ask the question of legacy, we're trying to learn lessons that we can apply to our lives. When we look back on our life at the end, how will people remember us? What will the reputation be that we leave behind? What will our legacy be? We talk about legacy in a number of contexts today. Sometimes we talk about presidents and politicians and the legacy that they're going to leave behind. Many times where I hear people talking about legacy is in the realm of sports with athletes. And maybe the most uh, recent notable example of this is Tom Brady. Tom Brady spent 20 years playing football for the New England Patriots. Uh, He has untold numbers of records and awards and trophies. He won six Super Bowls. Five of them was the, the MVP. Just an absolute remarkable career. This last season, he was a free agent, and there was a a lot of question and a lot of debate about, will he go back to New England? Will he retire and walk away from football altogether? Will he sign with a different team? And everyone had an opinion, and in the end, he signed a contract with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And if you look closely at this picture of him signing the contract, I'm not sure where he's at. It almost looks like a hotel room Uh, kitchenette of some kind. But there he is, and he's signing this contract. He's going to play football with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And the conversation before his signing and after his signing is, if Tom Brady leaves New England, what will the impact be on his legacy? Will it change the way that we remember him? Uh, Will it make us think more highly of him if he goes somewhere else and is successful? Or will it make us think less of him if he goes somewhere else and he's not quite as successful? And so people who care about these things have been debating the question of legacy. Now, for you and I, for most of us, legacy does not involve multi-million dollar football contracts and Super Bowl rings and are we going to play quarterback for this team or for that team? For most of us, Legacy is not something that will endure 100, 200 years from now if the Lord does not return in that time. 
most of us, our legacy will be relatively short-lived. And the question we're asking is, when we're gone, what will be remembered about us? What is the reputation? What is the stamp or the mark that we will leave behind on people's lives when we're gone? If you want advice on how to leave a good legacy, there's plenty of advice to be found. I did some Google searching this last week. Uh, one of the websites I found was called letsreachsuccess.com. Nice website, letsreachsuccess.com. And they said, here are the 10 things you need to do to leave a great legacy. And they're not talking about winning Super Bowls. They're just talking about people. They say, contribute beyond, your, uh, beyond yourself, create be a role model, raise your children well, love, give, do good, inspire, volunteer, make a family history. As a believer, as a Christian, you could look at that list and you could filter it through a faith perspective, but you could also look at that list from a secular perspective and God wouldn't have to have anything to do with those and there would be secular people who would say, yes, this is how you leave a good legacy. There's nothing in there specifically that would answer the question, how do we leave a legacy that we are people after God's heart? What would we have to do today in order for our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids to look back on our lives and to say, here's what I remember about mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, great-grandpa, great-grandma. They were a man, they were a woman after God's heart. That's the greatest part of David's legacy, is that we look back on his life, and yes, there are moments of mistake and sin and darkness and despair, but when we look back on the big picture of his life, the scripture tells us this was a man after God's heart. And we're going to begin with the, the two biblical references that talk about David and him being a, a man after God's own heart. The first one comes from Samuel the prophet. This was actually spoken before David assumed power in Israel. This is Samuel the prophet, the last judge of Israel, talking to Saul, and he says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. This is a bad legacy that Saul is leaving. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And we know because we've read the rest of the story that that man was David. He's a man after God's own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You find the same sentiment expressed in the New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He's talking about the, the history of Israel, and he says, They asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And in Paul's words, we see a couple of pieces of 
David's legacy, we see this idea repeated that he was a man after God's heart. We also see the reminder that from David's line, God brought someone greater than David. He brought Jesus. We're going to talk about both of those ideas tonight. So I thought we'd begin with just a little bit of review. If you rewound the tape all the way back to week one, we asked the question, how are we going to study David's life? And I just want to review that quickly. I think it's appropriate as we're ending. How should we study David's story? One of the options is we can study David as a hero. We can look back on all of these stories about David and we can say, here is someone that we want to be like when we grow up, a role model to follow. And we've talked Week one, through all the rest of our study, that's a little bit problematic because David did a lot of unheroic things. I'm going to remind you of some of those things in just a minute. So it really doesn't suit our purposes to talk about David and to study his life as if he were some kind of hero. Option two, we can study David as a villain. We can say, well, he did a lot of rotten things, so if we're not going to study him as a hero, perhaps we look at him and say, here's a lousy guy, you don't want to be anything like him. That's problematic because the scriptures we just read remind us this was a man after God's heart. There is something worthy of our emulation and our attention and our focus and something that we would try to copy in our own lives. The book of Hebrews includes David in the the hall of faith, this long list of people who believed God. So we, we can't study him as a hero. We can't study him as a villain. Option three, this is where we're getting into the realm of, of how we study his life. We can study David as an example, as an example. Not necessarily a good example in all situations and not necessarily a bad example in all situations, but a very real and relatable example. And if you have your Bible, I'd like you to take it. I'd like you to see a couple of references that help us make sense of this. If you look at the book of Romans, Paul writes to the church in Rome. And in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul says these Old Testament stories, these things that have been written in the past were written for our instruction. We're to learn from them. There's positive things we can learn, and there's negative things that we can be warned of. But the overarching picture is that we would endure in the faith, and we would have encouragement and hope. Paul says something very similar in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you flip a few pages to the right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's talking about Israel as they came out of Egypt, and and the things that they saw and experienced, and the sin that they continued to commit. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6, These things took place as examples for us. These stories about Israel, including the stories about David, are written to give us an example. Sometimes we look at these examples and we say, this is what it looks like to follow the Lord. Sometimes we look at these examples and we say, this is not how you follow the Lord. But they're examples that we can learn from. One place you can see this is in Psalm 139. We won't read it. Tonight, but you could look at Psalm 139. You could look at the things that David says about God in Psalm 139. You come away from Psalm 139 saying, 
God was part of every aspect of David's life. David knew that God knew all of his thoughts. David knew that he could not physically go anywhere where he would escape the presence of God. David knew that there was nothing in his past or his present or his future that God hadn't ordained and planned and and put into motion. He understood God is a part of every aspect of our lives. And we've talked about in this study how easy it is for us as American Christians to think God is part of my life when I'm sitting in the sanctuary or when I'm watching the live stream on Facebook. The rest of life is normal life, regular life. And we've got to break out of that mindset. And David is a a biblical character who gives us an example. God is part of every aspect of our lives. So David can be studied as an example. Fourth, maybe most importantly, we can study David as a type of Christ. David's story prepares us for Jesus. David's story reminds us that the best king Israel ever had wasn't good enough. And it reminds us that this promise God made to David that one of his offspring would sit on the throne of Israel forever. When you get to the end of the Old Testament, that promise is just left hanging. And it's no coincidence when you turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament and you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, one of the first things you read, the very first thing you read is this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's Matthew's way of saying, this is not a new story. This is the completion, this is the fulfillment of the story that you just read. And those promises that God made to David are promises that God intends to keep. David prepares us for the coming of his son. So we've got all those ideas in place. What I want to do tonight is simply say this. If we want to come to the end of our lives, and we want people to look back on our lives and say, that was a man, that was a woman, after God's heart, like has happened with David, what are the things that we need to do today? And there's three things I want you to see. Number one, David is remembered as a man committed to worship. He's remembered, we remember him as a man who was committed to worship. We're not going to look these up. They're giving you several references here. Um, you You can look those up on your own. When you look at 2 Samuel 23, 1, David is given a nickname, and that nickname is the sweet psalmist of Israel. The sweet psalmist of Israel. I don't know what your nickname is. I like to give people nicknames. Uh, we give nicknames in our house. You think about David and you think, what would his nickname be? Maybe it would be Giant Killer. Maybe it would be something related to the fact that he fought Goliath in battle and he chopped his head off with Goliath's sword and he carried his head away from the battlefield. Maybe it would be something relating to blood and guts and swords and military and fighting and armies and all of that stuff. And instead... At the end of his life, he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. It almost sounds like when you're watching a mafia movie and there's a 500-pound bodyguard and they call him Tiny. 
You look at David and all the battles he fought and all the, the people that he killed, just to be blunt, and you say, we're going to give this guy a nickname, and the nickname we're going to give him is the sweet psalmist of Israel. When you look to the book of Psalms, there are 150 chapters. 73 of them are attributed to David. There's a note at the top that says David wrote it. Another 12 are written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was the worship leader under King David, and they had a close friendship. So it means over half of the Psalms are directly connected to the sweet psalmist of Israel. You can look at 2 Samuel chapter 1. It talks about Saul being tormented by evil spirits and David playing music for him. Excuse me, that's 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16, Saul's tormented by this spirit and David is playing music for him. The text doesn't say what he played, My guess is it wasn't ACDC's greatest hits. My guess is it wasn't Guns N' Roses. Uh, It wasn't Metallica. It was probably psalms, worship music that soothed him and that restored Saul, even if it was temporarily restored him to a sense of sanity. 2 Samuel 1, David writes a lament. His friend Jonathan and Jonathan's father Saul had been killed in battle and David writes a lament and he teaches it to everyone in Israel. He wants everyone to learn it. A lament is grief, honest, raw grief expressed in worship to God. It's not just grief that rages in anger and despair. It's grief that's focused and channeled towards God. And it's honest. Sometimes it's way more honest than we are in church, but it's Godward. It's directed to God. And David would write these laments and he would teach these laments to the people in Israel. First Chronicles 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. David organizes all of this worship in Israel. It's one of the last things that he does. He puts singers in place and gatekeepers in place and priests in place and Levites in place. And he sets up a schedule and a rotation. And it's all very technical and very detailed. But it had a purpose, and the purpose was when he was gone, he wanted Israel to continue in worship. And so he put plans in place and people in place so that Israel would worship. The sweet psalmist of Israel. If we want our legacy in the end to be people, men and women, after God's heart, we have to be people committed to worship. That's a really easy box to check when every Sunday morning you can gather and assemble in this room and you can listen to Jake and Mark and Tony and Shannon and the others sing and play and you can lift your voice or you can sort of blend into the crowd. Listen, this, this idea of worship, it's an easy box to check when you can come to this room and you can say, I did it for an hour this week or an, uh, an hour on Wednesday night. What about when you're in quarantine and you're at home? What about when Jake puts you on the schedule and you have to come to an empty sanctuary? Are you committed to worship then? Or when you're on quarantine and you're at home, 
do you become a spectator? Look, at some point we're going to go back to some semblance of normal life. We are going to be back together in this room. When we're back together in this room, are you going to blend in with the crowd? Are you going to be here to listen to the band? Are you going to be here just to simply be another face in the congregation? Or are you going to be here to worship? If you want to come to the end, and your legacy is going to be someone after God's heart, you've got to be committed to worship. Secondly, David is remembered as a man who was solely devoted to the Lord. And on the slide, I've put LORD in all caps to reflect the Old Testament usage of Yahweh. He was solely committed, solely devoted to the Lord. Now, one of the things we've done in this series is we've been very honest. Uh, We've been honest at times about things that most people don't talk about when they look at David's life. We've been honest about some sins in David's life that make some of us uncomfortable because we've had him up on this pedestal as a hero. We've looked at episodes in his life that brought him down a little bit. I'll I'll put those up on the screen for you. Do you remember him drooling in Gath, running for his life, terrified that God would not take care of him, scratching on the door, acting like a crazy man, spit running down his beard? He did such a good job of acting like a crazy man that the Philistines decided he was absolutely no threat. The man who killed Goliath, who had killed dozens and dozens of Philistines as a bride price for Saul's daughter, they weren't worried about him because there he was drooling on himself. The anointed king of Israel literally making himself a fool in front of the Philistines. What about David fighting beside the Philistines? He marched out to battle. And he was on the Philistine side, and on the other side of the battle line was Israel. And God saved him from having to fight against his own people, but he marched out in that battle ready to fight alongside the Philistines. What about Bathsheba and Uriah and Joab? What about David's many wives and the drama surrounding his children. What about what we read a few weeks ago, David and Adonijah, he never at any time displeased his son by asking him, why are you doing that? He never disciplined his children. What about the census? Joab was not a godly man, and even Joab knew it was a bad idea. And David pressed on. What about Solomon's hit list? talked about this last week. David tells Solomon as he's dying, stay true to the Lord and don't forget to kill these men. We look at that list of sins and we say, how is this a man solely devoted to the Lord? Here's my answer. The answer becomes clear as you read about the the kings that followed David. He did not worship Baal. He did not bow down to the Asherah. He did not offer his children as sacrifices to Molech or Chemosh. He did not serve the other Canaanite deities. He did not take these other gods and goddesses and try to incorporate them into Israel's religious life for his own advantage and prosperity. He served 
Yahweh. When he wrote psalms, he wasn't writing them to Baal. He wasn't singing about Asherah. He was singing to the Lord and writing about the Lord. This becomes clear as you read about some of the other kings because David, in this sense, becomes the standard by which they're all measured. And I want you to see two examples of this. Look at 2 Chronicles 28 and 2 Chronicles 29. Turn in your Bible, 2 Chronicles 28 and 2 Chronicles 29. In chapter 28, 2 Chronicles 28, we meet someone named Ahaz. This is what the text says about Ahaz. He was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But this is what Ahaz did. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Ahaz was not solely committed to Yahweh. He tried to diversify his spiritual portfolio. He didn't cut Yahweh out. He just added a bunch of other gods in. And the chronicler looks back and says, he wasn't like David in that sense. Now look at Ahaz's son, 2 Chronicles 29. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. And in verse 3, you begin to read about Hezekiah cleaning the temple. It's not talking about Windex and Lysol. It's talking about Baal and Asherah. And he got rid of all that filth, and he was committed to Yahweh. If we want our legacy in the end to be men and women after God's heart, We've got to be solely committed to the Lord. My guess is, not once in your life have you been truly tempted to worship Baal. Never have you really wrestled with whether or not you should bow down to an Asherah pole. As bad as it may be on quarantine with all your kids at home, you have never thought should I sacrifice them in the valley of Hanam? Those aren't temptations that I've faced or you faced. The question is not, will we bow down to gods of wood and stone that they worshipped in ancient Canaan? The question is, will we diversify our spiritual portfolio so that we serve the Lord, but we add to Him other little g-gods? Our spouse our job, our children, our church, money, our health, our prosperity, our country, or will we be solely committed to worshiping the Lord? Number three, David is remembered as a man who pointed people to the Messiah. 
Now, he did this in a way that looks different than the way we do it, but that's because he lived before the Messiah was born, and we live after the Messiah was born. But the principle applies either way. He's remembered as a man who pointed people to the Messiah. If we want our legacy to be men and women after God's heart, this has to be something that we're committed to. Are we committed to pointing people to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ? Let me give you a few examples, and we're going to move through these quickly. We're not going to look up a lot of verses here. We're going to move pretty quickly. How did David do this? When people look back on his life, how did it happen? Well, for one thing, the prophets believed God would send another David. When you get to books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, these men lived hundreds of years after David was the king. They lived during the exile of God's people, when God's people were actually kicked out of the promised land. And one of the things they hoped for and prayed for and talked about was the fact that someday God would send a shepherd like David, a prince like David, a king like David, somebody from David's family. They had this hope, God's going to send another David. They looked back on his life and they said, we need that. We don't have it now. We have people chasing Baal and Asherah and all these other deities. We have people making political alliances with all of our enemies. What we need is someone like David. Secondly, Israel never forgot about God's covenant with David. They held on to that promise. You read about that covenant in in Samuel chapter 7. This covenant that God makes with David. 2 Samuel 7. Isaiah talks about it. God's people were going to be sent into exile, but God would save them because he made a covenant with David. He made a promise to David. Matthew and Luke, when they talk about Jesus being born, they make sure we know this baby that you celebrate on Christmas is the son of David. He's from the line of David. He's the fulfillment of this promise, this covenant. Matthew chapter 12, people see Jesus performing miracles and they say, could this be the son of David? Could this be the one that God sent to keep his covenant promise that he made all the way back in 2 Samuel 7? Could this be the one? The book of Revelation says it's him. Revelation 5, 5, Jesus is the root of, of David, Revelation 21:16, Jesus is the descendant of David. Throughout Israel's history, they held on to this promise. God made a covenant with David, and he will keep that promise. Next, Jesus' reign as king, that's capital K King of Kings, is often compared to David's reign as king, lowercase K, king of Israel. There's a parallel here. One helps us to understand the other. David reigning as king gives us a preview of Jesus as the king of kings. And even as Jesus is inaugurated as the king, it looks back and says, hey, this is kind of like David. If you have a Bible, look at Matthew 21. I'll just show you one example of this. This is a passage we talked about recently, or it's a story that we talked about recently. Palm Sunday, we looked at it in the Gospel of John Matthew tells the story in Matthew chapter 21, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And look what we read 
in Matthew 21, verse 9, the crowds that went before Jesus and the crowds that were following Jesus were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. He's riding a donkey into the city of David, an act, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that was a claim to kingship. We don't think of riding a donkey into Jerusalem as obviously he's claiming to be a king, but the Jews understood it that way, and they understood it that way rightly. They see him riding in, and they begin to say, look, this is the son of David. It's not just the crowds, it's the children. Verse 12, Matthew 21, 12, he entered the temple and he cleared out those who were buying buying and selling. Look down at verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. This is our king, the people were shouting out. Jesus is the king of kings and his reign is compared to David's reign as king of Israel. Three more quickly. You can look up the references. Jesus proved his divinity by referring to David's words in Psalm 110. David wrote Psalm 110. And in Jesus' last week on the earth, he's fielding and answering all sorts of questions. They're trying to catch him in theological gotcha. They can't. And he eventually turns the tables on his enemies with Psalm 110. And he says, how is it in Psalm 110 that David talks about the Messiah who will be his son, and yet David calls him Lord? You can go back and look at the logic of Jesus' argument. What he's saying is, I am the son of David. I am David's Lord. I am the Lord. He's arguing for his divinity. Peter jumps on this bandwagon. Peter saw the resurrection as proof that Jesus was greater than David. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. Peter's talking to a group of Jewish people, and he says, Look, we know that Jesus is the greater son of David. David died, and we buried him, and he stayed in the ground. Jesus died, and we buried him, and he came back to life. He's alive. God's kept his promise in sending the son of David. Last, Paul argues for justification by faith alone by referring to David. You can look at Romans 4. Paul talks about Abraham through most of the chapter, but he also quotes David in Psalm 32. David wrote Psalm 32 after the Lord forgave him for his sin with Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah. And he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Blessed is the one who experiences God's forgiveness. Blessed is the one who believes in the Lord like Abraham did. And that faith, that belief is counted to him as righteousness. Paul talks about it, justification by faith alone. So that's his legacy. It's not complicated. A list of three is way simpler than a list of ten. I started out with a list of ten. I'm just giving you three simple things. David, a man after God's heart. Why do we remember him that way? He was committed to worship. He was devoted to the Lord. And he pointed people to the Messiah. We want that to be true of us as individuals. We want that to be true of our families. And we want that to be true of our church. November 6, 2005, 
Tom Brady gave an interview to 60 Minutes. I realize 2005 seems like an awful long time ago, but by 2005, Tom Brady had already won three of his six Super Bowls, three-time Super Bowl champion. I watched part of the interview today. I've seen it before. This is a, a quote from the end of that interview. Tom Brady says this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? There's got to be more than this. The interviewer listens to him and then says, well, what's the answer? And Tom Brady, at least in 2005, said, I wish I knew. Three-time Super Bowl champion. His legacy was cemented way back then. And he looked around and he said, is this it? There's got to be something more than this, right? Poor interviewer looks at him and just says, well, what is it? Brady looks back and says, I don't know. I don't know how he would answer the question today. Maybe he has found something that he thinks is the something else. Maybe he hasn't. I do know this, there is something else. And there is a clear path to leave a legacy as a man or a woman after God's heart. And it's not complicated. I'm not telling you it's necessarily easy, but it's not complicated. Commit to worship. Commit to the Lord only. And be a person who points people to Jesus. Do that. And at the end, however many Super Bowl rings you have, however many of the ten things from letsreachsuccess.com you can check off, however many worldly accolades you accumulate, if you do those things, commit to worship, commit to the Lord only, and point people to Jesus, folks will look back and they'll say, that was somebody a person, a man, a woman, after God's heart.